In today's episode of The Balanced Voice, we cover an important topic that we believe needs to be openly discussed. Some may find our conversation about sex offenders to be uncomfortable. So with that in mind, viewer discretion is advised. How do you think we should hold sex offenders accountable in our community? Does our current system truly keep us safe? The reality is I think registration gives the community a false sense of security. We know these people. You can look them up and you can find out, you know, it's public information. He's a sex offender. But we don't know about the, the other people down the street. So you really just have to be aware of your surroundings at all time. And it's really about educating your children at a young age. That's Judy O'Brien, licensed professional counselor and licensed sex offender treatment provider. She was the first official director for the sex offender treatment program within the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Institutional Division and helped develop the treatment program there, which is currently used in various private practices as well. In today's balanced conversation, we discuss the changes in predatory behaviors, the role of power and control for offenders, and the false sense of security that the sex offender registry could be providing. Ultimately, we answer this question. Is there a better way to hold sex offenders accountable and prevent victimization within our communities? We hope you will join this conversation by sending us your thoughts and questions after the show on Instagram or Twitter. Without further ado, here's your host, Renia Mancarios. Welcome to the Balanced Voice Podcast. We are so excited to be visited today by Judy O'Brien. Judy, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, this is actually a really, really important conversation. I'm going to read a little bit about your background, a master's of arts degree in clinical psychology from Sam Houston State University in 1987, a licensed professional counselor and a licensed sex offender treatment provider. You returned to the criminal justice arena in the late 1989, working with sexual predators. You were the first official director for the sex offender treatment program within the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Institutional Division. And I can't even imagine what you saw and heard and experienced there. You helped develop the treatment program, which is now currently used in various private practices. For the past 30 years, you've maintained your own practice, treating not only sex offenders, but also also offering counseling on a variety of other issues. You are just such a fascinating person to speak with. First of all, I hope you're doing well and staying healthy and safe. Yes, thank you very much. As I hope you are too. I'm just glad that it's summer's coming and the sun's coming out and it's <laughs> We're about to experience the heat of Texas, but that's that is what it is. Judy, I want to jump in. You know, we were speaking a little bit before the program started. Um on some of these topics, they're very, very difficult to talk about. Um, we are trying to constantly create community education that engages the community, pulls them in, creates a, a platform for education so we can all do better moving forward. And there are a lot of topics we talk about that people say, interesting, but has nothing to do with me or my family. We have no signs of this, no issues with this, not, neither in my children or my spouse or, or nor in the environment that we are around. So to have you with us today will be interesting. I want to start by looking at, you know, you deal with sex offenders every day. I want to start with them, with the offender. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, 
the average, I know that's a weird way to say it, but the average sex offender, what they present as, what their life has been like, what their childhood has been like, what we might be surprised to know? Yes. Um, you will be surprised to know that most sex offenders, 60% of sex offenders have no other psychopathology. This is it. Um, and most people think, okay, they grew up maybe in an abusive home. Some did. Some did not. There is no um, way to figure out. And, and when I when I had to speak to the archdiocese in Fort Worth years ago, when I was still working in the prison, they wanted to know: Is there a test, or can you interviews before we get you know priests in here uh, that are sex offenders? There's not. There is no way to determine. Uh, we do know that they have faulty thinking, criminal thinking, and that's the one thing that we can identify with them um, when we're starting treatment. But yeah, there's, it's, unfortunately, there's no prediction. So it's not that a majority were molested as children or are addicted to pornography, um, have a sexual addiction? No. The, um, there were studies that were done a long time ago, and they were replicated and consistently saw that people, they took a group of sex offenders, they said, how many of you were abused as children? Basic, basic question, 70% raised their hand. They hooked them up to a polygraph, it dropped to 30. And that was replicated. So that they, they wanna use that as an excuse maybe to describe their behavior. And again, some of them may have come from um, horrible backgrounds and uh, may have been abused, may have been sexually abused. Some of them came from very upstanding, very nice backgrounds, very strict, very loving parents. Um, they went zig when everybody else goes zag. We, and it's kind of hard to <laughs> predict that. Addiction, that's the one that comes up a lot. The addiction versus compulsion. I tend to see it more as a compulsion because I don't ever want to give them the idea that they can't control their behavior. And a lot of times addiction therapies, I think they're changing some now, but a lot of times the addiction therapies will look at, okay, we'll I have to surrender to a higher power. I, I have, don't have control over this, but they do. Clearly they're not looking at porn and grief, right? So they know when they can look at it and when they can't. In today's world though, you're right. Kids are, are, are predisposed to pornography as in elementary school. Um, I am working with several children that have some problems with porn already at like eight years old. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a problem. The access to pornography, the normalcy of sexuality, this, it's all out there. I mean, look at the song of the year for, for heaven's sakes. Um, so, that is an element that I think is going to predispose some children now because juveniles are offending. And uh, I think that would predispose them and able to do that. You mentioned criminal thinking that these are potentially regular individuals that just have faulty or criminal thinking. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? And, and I'm, as you said that, I started to think about this movement a few years ago that really just said pedophilia is just another form of attraction. So I might be a heterosexual woman attracted to adult men. Uh, 
this might be a woman attracted to other women. This might be a man attracted to other men. And this might be a man or woman attracted to children. And we're all the same. What, tell me, let's talk about when you offend sexually. I mean, it's, you can be adult on adult. It can be adult on child. Where's the criminal element? Is it just in the effect that it's unwanted or is it only adult on child? And is there any science that this is just a normal new way of loving somebody? They would love for you to think that. I mean, what, what a great justification for this behavior, for them to have the, practically the psychology board almost taking it out of the DSM five, six, whatever it is now. And, um, you know, I mean, Epstein's Island, we sure would find out a lot about people if we normalized it. Um, but yes, the criminal thinking element is, is something that came up in the 70s with Yokelson and Samenow. Um, and so they wrote the book on criminal personality and they found that most criminals think differently. So everything that we see as beneficial or good, like empathy, honesty, they see as difficult. So they lie and they don't have regard for others. And that's for the criminal personality um, on the whole. Sex offenders tend to have more of them. Um, so we work a lot of the, a lot of times with them on uh, restructuring their thoughts with the strict cognitive behavioral therapies. And so, you know, they may come in and obviously when they first come in, they're all the victim, you know, and that's where they come in with, oh, this happened to me, or um, it's, look what they've done to me, look how much time I've got, and it didn't happen like that, it was a misunderstanding, you know, goes on and on and on. Uh, we have to restructure that thought for them, because clearly it was their responsibility, they did the inappropriate behaviors, and that's what we focus on. There is a crossover in behaviors, and this gets overlooked a lot, um, and I have, I have preached on this <laughs> for 30 years, they have research that says, and of course, for everything they have researched this way, you can find research another way, but I have seen this. For those who have, um, like when we use the term rape in our program, uh, because it's important for them to see how, that's the one word they don't want to use. So um, we want them to use it. And then everything they do is a rape-like behavior. And why don't they want to use that word? I'm sorry. Uh, because it's offensive to them. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is, I didn't rape anybody. You know, I touched them. No, it was unwanted. Anything right. That's unwanted is rape, in my opinion. So we have, we get pretty down and dirty with them on that. Um, but the crossover of behavior is um, hands off to hands on typically, although I think there's been some FBI research that shows online um, when they're caught with online uh, porn or child porn, they've already, I think it was like 25% or maybe more had already offended hands on. <clears throat> so just because they're caught with pornography doesn't mean they haven't had a hands off crime or yeah, hands on crime. Sorry. And then, um, so they move hands off to hands on. They move from inside the family to outside of the family. So it's not just incest perpetrators anymore. Um, they go from adult to child, child to adult. 50% of rapists have also, adult rapists have also molested children. Um, they go from uh, male to female. Because if you think about it, 
the preferred act with most sex offenders with little children is anal rape. And boys and girls, when they're that age, look the same from behind. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's just how I, I, I talk about this kind of stuff. This Balanced Conversation is made possible by Brigitte and Bashar Kalai, Hallie Vanderheider, Sippy and AJ Karana, and Deepwater Productions. If you're interested in furthering our mission of facilitating balanced conversations, offering real solutions, contact us at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. You mentioned the online component, and it's one that we're always thinking about because especially this last year with COVID, you had all these kids at home, everybody was at home. We know the online solicitation of minors went up by 93%. It just occurred to us one day that, you know, all of these people that are registered sex offenders, we're all home anyway. And here they are having an opportunity to dive into the sea of kids that have just now filled the online world. Where do they, I mean, I guess the boundaries, you know, there's one thing, like you said, hands-on, and then there's the other component of digital, digital, I guess there, there is digital assault, but how does a sex offender function between the two? And is there value, equal value in both? Um, do sex offender registries even prohibit, did they, I'm assuming they prohibit them from engaging with children online, but who's looking at that? Well, that's a good question because, um, if there was consistency among the crimes and among the sentencing and among the conditions, that would be really nice. There's never been. Um, online, child porn, they, when they're on probation or they've been through the system and they're, and they're registered, then yes, they have no internet, they're supposed to have no internet um, interactions. Uh, and we do polygraph them regularly. And that's one of the questions that is asked. And if they fail, then there's consequences. When they're off probation, but they still have to register, they don't have those conditions and they don't have anybody monitoring them. There's a company that, a remote comm that actually monitors their phones and any computers that they have. So yeah, so that's the scary thing is that when they're off probation, but still registered, there is no way to monitor, but the best way to monitor is with parents. Parents really need to know what their kids are doing. And um, particularly with games, sex offenders will troll games, playing with the, with another kid. You know, you can play with people, interact. I don't know much about that, but um, they'll troll them and then they'll try and set up a time to meet them. And then that kid's gonna be trafficked. So. Um, it's scary. Parents need to really monitor what their kids are watching, monitor their phones, monitor their computers, their friends. It's, it's that important. And I see too many times just that, that parents are not um, available. So you're, from your seat as a clinician dealing with the actual sex offenders, you're saying what you see is they find a preference in tolling and trolling these games looking for kids that they can groom and eventually meet and exploit. Parents are unaware of this, but you're seeing this literally before you. And I mean, kids of all, all 
backgrounds, all, you know, ethnicities? Is there a profile, specific profile that, that the predator is looking for? Is it just a parent that's not looking? Any household with a child where a parent's not looking? I think it's the availability of the child, how easily accessible the child is. And, you know, if a child's willing to give out personal information, where they live, their phone numbers, what school they go to, um, things like that, then yeah, they're a little bit more easily accessible than kids that are monitored by their parents and not and told not to give that information out. It's like if this could be on a megaphone, you know, it's one of the things we talk about, Judy, all the time. And you see, and we I can't tell you how many times you you hear you see the parents look like they're they're interested, but then there's sort of like a protective glaze, you know, like this can't happen to my kid. They go to a private school. We live in a gated neighbor. You know, these are what we hear, or we go to church on our Sundays, or we have a strong family network. And it's like, as long as they have a device where they can connect with the outside world, where, you know, the children are really talking to anyone and the parents have no clue then every child is a target. And to hear you say it, and you're dealing with the predators all day. I mean, this is what you actually see. And it's it's very difficult, you know, to sit there and listen to how easily that was for you to access uh, these kids. Then you've got the, the online solicitation um, where, you know, a, a kid might, a teenager might decide to put online that they're 18 so they can get on a dating site. Um, a lot of the online solicitation of minors, they pick up on that. You know, they'll say, well, they told me they were 18, but you know from the discussion that they're not. I mean, the conversation, the way that they're talking, a lot of times it's a sting operation and they're clearly, even in a sting operation as an adult, they're talking as if they're still in school and, you know, a kid, but because they feel like, oh, well, they signed up at 18, so I'm in the clear. So it's, it's, it's runs the gamut with that. The, the scary thing is, is the appetite for children. And I think it's only growing in this country and globally. And it, it always frightens me. Um, I'm thinking about juveniles who have to register as sex offenders. What are your thoughts on that? And I mean, is rehabilitation really the best process? I mean, we rehabilitate and do not make them register or are you finding in certain cases registration even for a juvenile is critical or warranted? Yeah, I think for a juvenile, the registration has to be on a case-by-case basis. And um, depending on the, the um, severity of the uh, offense. Um, and so if they are registered, let's say it's a 12-year-old predator. Um, I don't know that they'd register a 12-year-old. Um, so maybe a 15-year-old predator. And let's say it's time limited. That might be a one way to do it is limit it through, you know, post 10. Some adults get that also 10 years past. But the reality, and this is the part that, you know, I'm going to go off trailing here. Um, the reality is I think registration gives the community a false sense of security. Because we know, we know these people you can look them up and you can find out, you know, it's public information. He's a sex offender. He's a sex offender. Um, but we don't know about the, the other people down the street. 
So you really just have to be aware of your surroundings at all time. And it's really about educating your children at a young age about normal sexuality, about healthy sexuality, and then about deviancy. Um, that's, the kids have to be more um, educated with this because I don't think the way they've got registration now, adult sex offenders even, they're having a hard time finding work and finding a place to live. So that's gonna increase their stress. So we're setting them up to fail almost mm -hmm. in the system. Um, and, and I'm not bleeding heart here at all. I, they need to be held accountable, but I just think the registration might be one area we need to look at. Um, that and the child safety zones, the fact that they can't go within a certain limit of a daycare. Do you think that's good or bad? I think it's another false sense of security because I can't see that someone is safer at 900 feet than they are at 1,000 feet. If they're going to reoffend, they're going to reoffend. We're not going to stop them. So they're going to go into the areas. You know, back in the day when we first started with the child safety zones, it used to be simple. Don't go to a park. Don't go to a daycare. Don't go here. Now it's don't go within 1,000 feet. Well, that makes it almost impossible again to find a place to live, to find a place to work. Um, it's yeah, so, so again, another failure set up to fail. Um, and I've seen that happen. And finding the balance is one of the things we bring up a lot. You know, we, we care about criminal justice and we want people who commit especially egregious crimes, especially crimes against children, especially repeat crimes to be held accountable. But we don't believe in unjust punishment, unfair punishment, unfair trials. We don't want to ruin people's lives. And we certainly want people to have every opportunity to be rehabilitated. So it, you're raising an interesting point when you talk about the registry, the way it's set up now is, you know, potentially setting people up for failure. That's a very, very interesting point. And we don't want that. We need a database. That's the, that's the, Sticky, we do need the database, but I think we need to look at the crime. So for instance, do you want a 19 year old date down, which we call a date down or Romeo Juliet. So he's 19, he's dating a 15 year old. He may still be in high school. And so they've been dating. They may even have parental permission to date. And then she comes up pregnant. Someone gets mad, false charges. He's a registered sex offender, sometimes for life. Sometimes it's only for 10 years after, post 10 is what they call it. Sometimes it's just for the duration of probation. Does that person need to register versus the 40 year old uh, youth pastor who has got all these kids that he can, that comes up, come over to their house and they he fondles them and he rapes them in the pool. And you know, which one do you want registered? Exactly. <laughs> And you, as you're even talking about that, I go back to, again, you said criminal thinking. You also said they don't like the word rape, but I'm trying to get into the mind of these predators. You know, when, when, you're, when we're in a world where today pretty much anybody can enter a relationship with anybody else, what is it about the luring and the assault is, is, is that the attractive part for them? The attractive part for them is power. 
power and control, um, usually a time when they're feeling powerless. And so um, kids are vulnerable. They're easy targets. They're easy targets to groom. They're easy targets to win over, if you will. And so then it becomes a game. And for them, the fantasy of what they might do to that child is the most important part of the offense cycle because that's where the, all the, the power and the excitement and the buildup comes from. The actual act is, you know, doesn't live up to the fantasy. You know, obviously reality and fantasy, fantasy can be whatever you want it to be. Reality doesn't live up to that. So that's why they reoffend, <laughs> you know, and they reoffend at a high rate. Did you know that Crime Stoppers of Houston offers free safety presentations to people of all ages? Through our Safe Community Program and Safe School Institute, we work to educate students, parents, law enforcement, and the community at large about the best ways to stay safe every day. We cover topics such as cyber safety, human trafficking awareness, situational awareness, and so much more. To view our list of offerings or request a virtual or in-person presentation, visit crime-stoppers.org presentation underscore request. When you've dealt with now predators for over 30 years, have they talked to you about like grooming tactics? What are some of the most common? Well, clearly the most, one of the most common is um, if it's a small child, it's going to be giving them attention, uh, giving them extra attention, uh, maybe even taking them shopping, you know, candy, you know, the typical stuff that you think about but it's really about giving them attention and paying attention to their every whim and making them think that they can trust you and that you're the person that they need to go to. Um, and they get a and, lot um, of power out of that. A small child is, how, how old is a small child? And so we've had victims as young as um, six months and then uh, or the offenders have had victims as young as six months and all the way up to, you know, 18. And then of course, some have had adult victims. Um, but typically it's going to be around uh, either they're into the prepubescent years or they're into the kind of postpubescent years, you know, the pedophiles. And then the other one is considered a hebophile. And then there's something that uh, I can't ever say this one right, but it's another category. And then ehebophile, which is like 16 to 19. So they've broke, broken it up in several different categories. But typically, the pedophiles are going to be 13 and younger. In your years of working in this area, you obviously believe in rehabilitation. But do you, is anyone ever fully cured or restored or transformed where they can be alone with any number of children in any given situation? No. No. Um, except for, <laughs> except for maybe the, the date down and the younger, you know, the juvenile offenders, uh, but the adult offenders, no, I wouldn't trust that they would could be alone with any child. Um, and cure, no control. Yes. Transform. Yes. Um, but they have to always be cognizant of their surroundings. We have people in their world that we train as chaperones that actually monitor them because once they're off probation, no one's monitoring them. And that's why we need someone to take over. 
I know we're going to have to wrap up our time soon, but I'm thinking about this whole notion of children as young as eight being exposed to pornography and the society in the world that our kids are growing up in and how much it's changing. If you're a parent today, you've already talked about making sure you talk to your children about what um, the grooming process might look like. The fact that you, you know, there could be very dangerous predators on the other end of a gaming platform and parents need to know this and kids need to know this, but what if you're a parent and you're, I mean, you're raising potentially a predator signs, discussions, what, what should families be looking at parents in their own home? I think it's hard because again, just like with the adult predators, there's no, you know, basket you can put them in and that's where they go. They come from all different backgrounds, but I think the more secretive a child is, the more distance a child is, um, the more aggressive they are. Um, I would look for, you know, uh, signs of uh, masturbation, um, things that maybe they're doing at, a, at an early age or they're um, talking sexually, doing things um, completely like not age appropriate. Um, the, uh, and then a lot of alone time with their computers and just see what's on there. But yeah, the aggression, the power, and you know the bullying, any signs like that should be addressed. This is an odd question, but we've heard or I've read that uh, there's high incidences of incest between young siblings, and it's more of an experiment. It's uh, home alone in the summer type of stuff. I mean, do you see that? Have you, is there a connection there between criminal behavior as one gets older? Well, I know that um, the um, the two um, the psychiatrists and psychologists I referenced earlier, Yokelson and Salmonell. Salmonell has written a book on it's called "Before It's Too Late," and um, I don't know if you are already familiar with that, but they you can identify psychopathic behavior as young as two, um, and it's lack of remorse, a lot of lack of remorse. If there's any kind of injury to animals, if there's any kind of like fire starting. Um, things of that sort, you want to pay particular attention to it. There was something that I was reading that talked about incest. I, I'm very intrigued by the exposure of young children to pornography. I'm very intrigued. And I'll tell you why. We had a speaker at our gala three years ago, and um, she was saying that it had become common for young men, like before they go to college, to have to start taking erectile dysfunction medicine. And I was, I said, why? We're talking about 16, 17, 18 year old boys. And she said, well, if you consider that they've been watching pornography since they were nine or 10, by the time they're 18, let's say a normal situation does nothing for them. It doesn't arouse them. It doesn't excite them. And their, their, their response to normal things is just different. And that the, the world of pornography has actually changed to meet the, the changing demands of the marketplace. So they're looking for younger kids. They're looking for more aggressive footage. They're looking for videos that include animals. They're looking for things that include like family relationships. Like the more obscene, I guess, is, is, is the trend or where the market's going. And I was just curious if research was showing, you know, um, a link between kids who might be home alone in the summer, siblings who are, who are, you know, there's a, there's a, a hint of incest. And what I've read is 
people experimenting, kids being home alone and bored, and that turning into something more significant. And I think you answered it. Um, I'm curious before we wrap up, we shared some data with you on a human trafficking report Crime Stoppers had put together. And I'm not going to go through all the numbers, but this was interesting. Of 30 people, 30 offenders sentenced in Harris County between January 2018 through December 2020, um, only 3% were required to register of a sex offender. The offenders' charges included, and this is why it's interesting, trafficking of child prohibited conduct and attempted compelling prostitution of a child under 18. Only 3% were required to register as a sex offender. And the report goes on and on, and the numbers are staggering. And the, the takeaway is very few people are actually required to register as a sex offender. Now you've brought up the point on whether the registry, and we do have to hold people accountable. Maybe the registry is the right way or the wrong way. Uh, there has to be a database, you've said that. But I can't imagine that there's a system where only 3% of a pool of people that have literally exploited others are charged or or at this point required to register as a sex offender. Is that normal? Is Harris County normal or are we are our standards much lower? I think it's the offenses because um, human trafficking, prostitution, johns or pimps, those aren't technically sex offenses. Injury to a child is not a sex offense and it's not thus registrable. So that's where the, the loophole is. Um, it needs to be changed because, yeah, I do think traffickers need some more consequences than they're getting. Um, but I mean, we have people that have out, outright raped adopted kids and they had a good enough attorney to get it pled down to injury to a child and never had to register. And then again, I go back to the uh, juvenile who's dating the 15-year-old and they have to register for life. So there's no consistency. There's nothing. So yeah, um, I think it's because those crimes are not considered sex offenses. And I take a deep breath and realize there's more work we need to do. We're so thankful for people like you um, who do the incredibly important work you do, if you had, you know, a request for the community in terms of what we should be following, looking at, um, paying attention to in this area, is, does something specific come to mind? Pay attention to what your children are watching on their computers, especially now since they're all doing virtual, as you mentioned, on their phones, have their passcodes, be that parent, <laughs> because your child's life is too important. And they're crafty. Sex offenders can be very crafty. And very persistent from what we've learned. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. Judy O'Brien, thank you so much for sitting down with us and having this really important conversation on the Balanced Voice podcast. Um, everybody else, we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's Balanced Conversation. You can find real solutions and tangible resources in our show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at thebalancevoicepodcast and on Twitter at balancevoice underscore. Stay up to date on Renya's work by following her at The Renya Report 
And we can't wait to see you next week for another Balanced Conversation.